you know, in the back of my head, I am slightly worried with like how much of mining hash rate is getting publicly known and is publicly out there, um, which means that the surface level for state attacks is is a little bit higher, a little bit easier uh, to happen. I'm, I'm not like thinking that in the next 10 years, the U.S. is going to try and conspire against like the Bitcoin industry by taking over all these people's facilities. But certainly like from a miner's perspective, we want to build as resilient of an industry as possible so that no single actor, regardless if we think they're good today or not, or not can attack it. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Ethan Vera from Luxor. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. I've been uh, looking forward to coming on for quite some time. So I'm absolutely. excited for this one. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to have you. Um, so if the audience, you know, they may not know who you are, who are you and how did you originally get into Bitcoin? Yeah, so I'm uh, one of the co-founders and the CEO of Luxor uh, Mining. So we're a full stack software services company in the mining space. Um, been in mining for about a half decade. Uh, before that was working at Goldman. Uh, part of their initial blockchain coverage team in the investment banking group, as well as working in some adjacent industries, uh, semiconductors, energy, all of which ended up being, you know, pretty important uh, coming to the mining space at the time. I had no idea it was, you know, out of pure luck, but uh, kind of all built me into into really caring and, and taking an appreciation for what mining is. And, uh, you know, it's definitely where I want to spend the rest of my career. So uh, it's been a good uh, first start here. Nice. Yeah, I actually did not know about your background, so that's interesting. Um, I guess we'll just jump straight into mining. Uh, how are you thinking about the mining landscape right now? Like, Bitcoin is well off its all-time high. Mining difficulty is at an all-time high, and energy is pretty much becoming more expensive all throughout the world. So it's pretty much like pretty trying times for miners. How are you just thinking about it broadly right now? While this point in a cycle isn't new to the mining industry per se, it is the first time that we're going through this where the media and the public actually cares about mining and there's a lot of attention to it. Some of that's due to just the increased adoption of Bitcoin. Some of it's, you know, mining specific, a lot of publicly listed companies and public shareholders involved. Um, but regardless, it's getting a lot of attention this time. Um, this kind of reminds me uh, to a degree of uh, what happened in summer 2020. Um, as well as kind of the, the tail end of 2018 uh, time in the mining cycle where uh, economics are dropping in terms of hash price, you know, the dollars that you can get from your machine are dropping. At the same time, manufacturers had previously already built a ton of machines based on the past six to 12 months uh, revenue. And so now they're delivering all these machines and you're seeing a surplus of people competing over a fixed number of Bitcoin. And it's really crushing economics here. Um, what I think is interesting about this cycle compared to the last two kind of downturns is high energy prices. Um, you know, we, we didn't see that high of energy prices in the past two, and that's squeezing people on the cost side. And then uh, the leverage on people's balance sheets. You can certainly see that some of the pubco level, a lot of people got very aggressive with taking on debt capital uh, in 2021 when it was very you know cheap. And now they're facing a situation where they have very low economics, but they have very high debt repayments and, and they're getting squeezed. So I think there's going to be two things that really define the people who win here. One, who can do treasury management the best, keep a clean balance sheet. And then two is like, because it's a commodity business, who can have the lowest cost operations, the highest efficiency machines, and really be more defensible in this highly cyclical industry we're in. 
No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, it is interesting how all throughout last year, we saw these publicly traded mining companies just kind of go all in on Bitcoin. Like they were trying to raise as much equity and as much debt as possible to buy as many machines. And I think like in comparison to like maybe more of a traditional commodities market, they're going to be like actually hedging, you know, the price of Bitcoin instead of just leveraging to the hills. Do you think that's going to change? And I know Luxor is working on products that might help miners change, but do you think that will change over time? I think the concept of raising capital in, in bull markets makes sense because it's cheaper. Um, I, I think people misjudge the ratio of equity versus debt capital and went a bit too heavy on debt. Um, those that went heavier on equity, for example, like a marathon are in you know, a better position than somebody who went as heavy on debt, like a core scientific. So I, I think people's minds will start to change on like what type of capital I should be raising. But I, I foresee that continuing to be attractive in, in, in bull runs. Um, in terms of like de-risking your business, I mean, this is a commodity business. So similar to any other like oil company or gold company, like you need to find ways to de-risk your business because you're at the mercy of commodity prices that are outside of your control. And so that can be done in a few ways. We've talked about treasury management already, but the other two really are on the cost side, like locking in a fixed PPA or doing, you know, electricity futures through a platform like CME is important. Um, we, we've seen a lot of people that weren't able to lock in electricity prices this past cycle and are now uh, facing negative consequences for it. Um, big announcements coming out last week, for example, like Core Scientific raising uh, their hosting rates to, you know, uh, upwards of like nine, 10 cents. Uh, so that's really important for miners, lock in your, your, your cost of power as much as possible. Um, even if the forward power curve looks like it's going to go down, uh, I think it's too big of a gamble to bet on. And then second is on the, on the revenue side. So it's still pretty nascent and there's not a lot of great products out there, but, uh, these machines produce hash rate really, uh, miners should be hedging the, the hash rate in which these machines produce or at least a portion of it to cover your costs. Um, so we're working on a product here. A few others are as well. Um, our view on the space is there'll be a myriad of different products out there, everything from cash held to physically delivered, you know, options, forwards, swaps, um, offered by multiple vendors and uh, exchanges. And um, together, those will form the basis of a new financial market that miners can tap into to hedge their revenue um, or a portion of it to, to you know, become more defensible. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other day you had an, a super interesting tweet it was focusing on S19 XPs and you're basically explaining that these, you know, very, very new gen mining rigs could basically act as kind of like a hedge on further downside in the price of Bitcoin, or at least the market value of these machines might not fall at the same amount if Bitcoin, you know, just rips to or it gets hit hard to 10K. Can you like explain your thought process on that or, or why that would be the case? Yeah. Um, and, and so I kind of, that was a stretch of a tweet because I'm not sure if it'll happen, but based on evidence from past cycles, looking at machine price and mining economics, uh, it's, it's very clear that high efficiency machines uh, move less with downturns in economics. And so if Bitcoin price say crashes by 50%, you'll see a huge sell-off in old generation machines, S9s, S17s, they'll go down to basically being worthless because an S9, you can't mine with it, you know, sub one and a half cent uh, is, is what it takes to run it. So they basically become, you know, heaters. Um, whereas the new generation machines definitely move less uh, on both downside and upside as well. So 
that's definitely the evidence is there, but I kind of took that a step further saying, okay, if we break certain resistance lines in terms of hash price, it may be the case that only the top efficiency machines can mine. And all these people who set up mining businesses have investors, you know, that they've got into mining will need to go to the highest efficiency machine in order to keep mining or also have to exit the industry altogether. For example, like a Bitmain S19J Pro, which is considered almost top of the line, um, you need under eight cent power to run that profitably. Um, if your host charges you 10 cents, you got to turn that off um, or find a new host. And so th those types of market participants, I think, could potentially flee to the S19 XP or the M50S or the new Avalon A13 series that was announced this morning um, and really kind of flock to those. So we could get into a really interesting dynamic where um, if the price of hash price decreases, so mining economics decrease, um, certain machine models could actually increase. Um, but that, that's a hypothesis. I guess we'll wait to see. Yeah, no, I mean, I generally agree with that idea. And I think that like, if that does happen and like hash price just gets obliterated, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone that owns like older mid-gen and like S19J pros will be buying XPs. It only takes like a small group of those people to buy XPs to really like put a bid in for XPs and prevent them from going down, I think. That's a good point. People like, there's a very high correlation between machine prices and the price of Bitcoin and hash price. But also it's a supply and demand market. That's how the price of everything's set. So if for whatever reason, supply becomes constrained, you know, maybe the U.S. sanctions uh, certain components of, of Bitmain's process or whatnot, or, um, you know, certainly with Kanan and, and SMIC, it's a bigger concern. Um, there could be just like a shortage of new generation machines and uh, a, a shortage of supply will, will skyrocket the price. Yeah. I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on this idea over time, we've kind of seen ASICs commoditized, quote unquote, where the next gen rig is more efficient than the previous gen rig, but it's not like magnitudes more efficient. Do you think that that trend will continue? And if so, or if not, do you think that the rigs that are released today, will they be able to last longer and maybe maintain their value for a longer period of time? Yeah, I think that's kind of like a theme of like people predicting like Moore's law breaking, uh, basically like our um, improvements on efficiency and chip size will will, de will decrease over time. Um, I think that's the case for almost everything in life. It's very like when you build a big company, it's very hard to grow at two hundred percent a year. Uh, but if you're a startup and it's your first year of operation, you know two hundred percent is doable. Um, and so when we saw kind of the evolution of ASICs, um, from, you know, the Bitmain S1 all the way to the S9, like it was just like a steady fall in, um, uh, power usage per, per output of, of compute. Um, so it's certainly the case where that, uh, percentage of gain each year is going down as a percentage. Um, but, I, but I do think that we will continue to innovate. And so as long as you have the hypothesis that the Bitcoin price will increase over the next 10 years, um, hash price will also increase. And so in that case, people will be incentivized to build better and better machines. Um, but I, I do agree with the thesis that they will steadily decline in terms of, you know, how much better they are every generation. Um, in terms of how long they last, that's an interesting concept. I mean, from a uh, hardware perspective, we realize now that it's very dependent on a machine. Um, you know, an S9 lasted five, six years before you started seeing like mass failure rates of them. 
Uh, so it's very durable. Whereas uh, S17 series, I could barely last six months. Um, it's hard to say what, where the XPs fall in that. I would lean towards the former, just given, you know, Bitmain's uh, really stepped up its manufacturing game and learned from a lot of the mistakes from the 17 series. But there's always a chance that we see mass failures of the XPs. Um, we've never run that type of chip before at that hot of a temperature in operating climates like Texas. Um, and so there's a lot of like new variables that we're introducing that could change the outcome of uh, machine longevity. Yeah, that's a good point. We've brought up the the term hash price a lot of times, and I'm not sure if the entire audience even knows what that is. Could you just explain that? Yeah. So hash price is really the fundamental basis of, of how we look at like the mining space, mining revenue. Um, so w- machines, what they do is they produce compute power. They, they produce compute power that can work on the SHA-256 hashing algorithm. Um, for that compute power that they generate, they get paid out for a certain amount of it based on the mining economics at the time. And so you can calculate basically how much a single uh, unit of compute uh, generates over a certain period of time. And so internally we, we uh, denominated in the amount of dollars that a petahash of compute generates over a daytime. Um, the, the amount that it generates is based on three things when you look at it on a Bitcoin basis. Uh, network difficulty, which you can get directly from the blockchain, uh, transaction fees, uh, so people that use the network and pay uh, a transaction fee as part of their, their transaction, and then uh, block subsidy. So on a, on a fixed schedule, roughly every four years, uh, decreases by half, currently 6.25 BTC. Um, so with those three metrics, uh, you can get how much Bitcoin a machine will produce in a daytime or a unit of compute, um, and then you can just exchange it to, to US dollar if you want to denominate it that way. Um, and so that's how we look at building financial instruments and that's how we look at mining economics. Yeah. I noticed it may have been a week ago. You guys switched from, uh, quoting hash price and terahash, and now you're doing it in petahash. Why, why make the switch there? Yeah, it is unfortunate because we spent so much time quoting it in terahash. And so it's even hard to fix like internally. Um, I, th- I think as this industry grows, um, everything will, will shift towards bigger and bigger units of, of compute. Eventually a machine is going to produce uh, petahash for, you know, thousand watts of power uh, eventually. And so we're, we kind of just like, we're looking forward in the next five years and decide to rip off the bandaid now. Eventually it had to happen. Like you're going to be denominating in higher and higher levels of compute as our computers get better and more computers get added to the network. Um, so yeah, we just ripped off the mandate. We're doing it in petahash now, and that's how our financial instruments trade on a dollars per petahash per day basis. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of uh, something I saw on Twitter. I think it was yesterday or today. People again bringing up the idea of denominating Bitcoin and satoshis rather than dollars. Do you have any opinion on on that topic as well? I, I think eventually we will. Um, and so it's a, it's a function of when do we want to make that change? Maybe it's too early now, just given Bitcoin, you know, still kind of around the 20K range. But certainly when Bitcoin becomes, uh, you know, valued much more, I think it does make sense to start valuing it in Satoshis. Um, it's similar to how like companies deal with like stock splits, like, you know, either stock split or reverse. Like you want the number somewhat digestible for people. It's obviously a matter of perception. It doesn't actually change anything. But perception matters. Like if you go to buy a stock and it's $5,000, people are like, oh, it's really expensive. But if you go to buy it at $2, they're like, oh, it's very cheap. It's like, well, that's not really uh, how things work here. 
um, and especially for Bitcoin, where you know you don't have to buy a full Bitcoin, it really doesn't matter. But um, it's hard to get that across. So I think going to Sats will make it easier for normal people to digest. Like, you know, okay, this I, I don't need to make a three hundred thousand dollar purchase. I can make a ten dollar purchase pretty easily. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how a lot of people have a hard time grasping like that idea that it doesn't really matter how many shares outstanding you have or how many what the actual number of Bitcoin is. It's the the idea that it's a, you know, a, a pie that's being split. You know, you have one percent of the pie, no matter if that's, you know, one Bitcoin or 100 million Satoshis. It's the same thing. But yeah, it's an interesting topic <laughs> um, this summer. I know I like. I like looking at hash ribbons to see if, if there's an ongoing minor capitulation, basically seeing if there's net hash rate coming on or off the network. Um, this summer, we kind of, according to hash ribbons, we saw a small minor capitulation where, you know, difficulty did go down at least a couple times and hash rate, you know, came off the network. Do you think we'll see another uh, drop in hash or significant drop in hash rate before the 2024 halving? Um, or do you think that, we're just going to keep, you know, slowly or quickly, maybe grinding up uh, from levels that we are at today. Right. That's an interesting topic. Um, I, I also spend a lot of time looking at the hash rate charts and um, I still haven't figured the best way to do so. Um, a lot of people don't know that network hash rate is not a like real number. You can't get that from running a node. You need to estimate it based on something else. Um, and so the majority of people look at network hash rate based on the average block time over a certain look back period, you know, three, seven day average, simple moving average or something like that. Um, it's not perfect though, because for example, like a three day simple moving average, you know, 144 blocks per day, three, three days, it's not a lot of, uh, it's not a huge sample size. And so there's a chance that a lot of mining luck is going into that number. Um, for example, sometimes we mine blocks 10 seconds apart or last week we mined a block that was 85 minutes uh, after the, the previous block. And so um, there, there's a lot of variance in, in small numbers due to the probabilistic nature of mining. Um, but then if you look at a seven day, if you're trying to like get a current level of hash rate, you're averaging it so far back that it's like, well, a lot of this influence was from last week and not right now. Um, so I, I find that interesting. Would love your take on, on where, where, where you think like, you know, the, the best source to look at for uh, network hash rate and how to analyze it is, but in terms of your question there, like, do, do I think there'll be another minor capitulation? Um, I, I think we're definitely in a dynamic now where there's a lot of people near their profitability line. So where they're willing to supply hash rate to the network based on their mining economics. Um, and so in the case that Bitcoin price drops, um, you know, I think there will be a lot of people that are turning off their machines and capitulating. And certainly in uh, the halving, if we haven't you know, seen a large run up in Bitcoin price, it's going to be very painful for the high cost operators and the low efficiency miners for sure. We could use like 2016, 2020 having as a case study there where block reward drops by 50%, you know, mining economics are falling, you know, around 45% because of transaction fees. Um, and so you immediately see a huge drop in network hash rate, you know, sometimes on the scale of one-to-one, -one, sometimes a bit less, but uh, I think if we're near profitability lines, then, the scale is going to be near like one-to-one -one drop. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking, imagine if the halving was tomorrow, it would be absolute chaos probably in the mining industry. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you made a great point earlier about 
measuring hash rate. I, I see like big accounts on Twitter, you know, pretty regularly, you know, post like hash rate with basically like a one day moving average of, and it's being calculated, like you said, off of block times. And people are like, oh my gosh, you know, thousands of miners got plugged in uh, overnight. This is crazy. Is this like a nation state attack or something? And it's like, no, it's not really how it works at all. It's just a complete estimate. And, you know, it's most likely that blocks were just flying in by random chance for the last 24 hours rather than more hash rate actually coming online. So, yeah, as, as far as measuring it, I mean, it's I like using the 14-day moving average just to get a quick idea. But, yeah, it's not an exact, you know, measurement by any means. It's pretty much impossible to accurately correct on and or accurately determine not like any point in time, I would say. That makes sense. I, I do like using uh, self-reported hash rate by the mining pools for um, point in time events. So like China ban or Kazakhstan, like power outages, you can see all the pool hash rate just dropping all at once. And you can see very like live of like what their reporting hash rate is. It's also not a perfect metric because it relies on you trusting the mining pools. Uh, so there's nowhere to verify it. They could just show that or they could not show it. But um, I think if you like try to understand the incentive, like why would mining pools try and alter this data, you can start to get at least some level of confidence. Okay, well, you know, all pools are showing a drop in hash rate. There probably is something going on with like one of these countries right now. Yeah, no, that's another interesting way to, to think about it as well. Um, I'm curious to know your ideas on, you know, the last, I guess, couple of weeks or I think not, we had a difficulty adjustment maybe yesterday or very recently. And then the one before that, it was like plus 13%. So what are your thoughts on why hash rate right now? Why is it jumping so much? Why, or why is difficulty jumping so much? Did it have something to do with the ETH merge or are there a bunch of other factors at play? I, I think it's a few different factors. So the, the biggest one I would say is that machine production gets planned up to a year in advance. And so machines delivering in, you know, October, 2022, really were planned from, from economics last year. Um, and so basically we, we saw that in 2018 and 2022, especially in 2018 with just S9s flooding the market when there's no business for those to get flooded. Um, and so I think that's like probably the underlying pin to it, but then there's all these other factors. There's um, previously uh, allocated to Ethereum mining, that power can be repurposed. The racks can be, you know, change for power density. It's it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it gets done if the economics are right. Uh, I personally know probably like 30 to 40 megawatts of Ethereum mining power that was now allocated to Bitcoin mining. And I don't know that many Ethereum miners. So I assume it's like, you know, 10, 10 20 X of that. Um, so it is a significant amount of power probably. Um, there's obviously rumors going around that Russia is really gathering a lot of hash rate just based on like, you know, geopolitical relations, sanctions of their energy sector. Um, there's discussions of Bitmain plugging in on a lot of machines uh, based on excess supply they have. Um, and then finally, I think, which is definitely more verifiable and less of kind of uh, a rumor is uh, new efficiency machines getting delivered. XPs are starting to hit farms in big numbers. M50S is, um, they're raising the, uh, I guess, the efficiency. So like basically how, how, how much profit each of these guys can generate. And if you have say three S9s running, that's, you know, over four kilowatts of power, you could replace that easily with an S19 XP um, and generate like three times as much hash rate off that same amount of power. Um, so certainly like those efficiency machines hitting these farms, replacing old gen 
is going to be a big uh, reason why that, that network cash rate is increasing. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with, with all of those points there. Um, back in 2020, Blockware basically pioneered this, this research idea that was estimating miners' operating costs by their machine efficiency and their energy rates. I know you have, you know, additional ideas on this topic. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So that report was released. Yeah. I forgot which month, but early 2020, um, it, it was one of the most interesting reports I'd read all year. And it was actually right before the having too. So it was extremely relevant. Um, so yeah, I think it was, it, it was a great article. I recommend everyone go read it. Uh, but one of the most interesting pieces of that was basically a projection of where the network was at in terms of um, operating costs based on the efficiency of the machines that were running um, and and why it's so interesting to layer those two concepts onto each other is because then you can get to what the gross mining margin is of miners. And so um, one of the analysis we're working on right now is this concept of hash price resistance lines. And so the idea of like, where do miners want to supply hash rate and when will they decide not to supply hash rate to the network? And if you, if you kind of use some economic theories, um, like when mining margin is negative, they're going to turn off their machines. Then you can start to understand, okay, if we see a fall in Bitcoin price, how many miners on the network are going to turn off their machines? Um, and so what we've come up with this analysis kind of building on, on that, um, you know, breakdown is basically, um, as Bitcoin price falls or, if, it, if Bitcoin price falls, how much network difficulty is going to fall as a result of that? Um, if we were at, say, a hash price, $1,000 per pet hash per day right now, if Bitcoin price fell 5%, network hash rate wouldn't drop at all because everyone's still making 95% margins. No one's going to turn off their machines. But if, say, it dropped 50% in today's world, you know, probably like 35 40% of the network hash rate is going to fall offline because it's going to throw a lot of people unprofitable and they're going to have to turn off their machines. Um, and so we, we think that's a really interesting analysis for market participants, especially people who look at downside risk, like credit investors, right? They want to know, okay, if I finance a client at 5 cent power at S19 XPs, how defensible are they? Where are they on the chopping block? Uh, you know, are, the, are certain big operators going to fall before them and provide some resistance to, to hit their cutoff levels? Um, and uh, kind of looking at some case studies here, uh, 2016, 2020 having were like perfect case studies for it. Um, and so kind of looking back at both of those, you, you, you saw that once that having happened, hash rates really stabilized among certain levels, uh, based on the network, uh, efficiency at the time or estimated network efficiency as well as operating costs. Back then it was much higher. It was like $750 a petahash in 2016. Uh, but that's also because, uh, machine efficiency was, you know, over hundred joules per terahash. So you had to generate a lot more per, per unit of hash to, to make up for that. Um, but yeah, I think this is opens up like a new frontier, you know, building on that initial blockware report of like all this really interesting analysis that can be done um, using kind of the breakdown of operating costs and uh, machine efficiency. Yeah, I'll definitely look forward to checking out that report because totally agree. I think it takes a while to construct that and to try to really get the variables correct but it's extremely valuable to like the entire industry, especially miners and, and, you know, a bunch of other market participants as well. Um, but yeah, that, I think that was a, that was a good topic. Uh, I saw Nick, who's the, I, I think he's the CEO of, of Luxor. He posted this tweet that I thought was like very interesting and I'm not sure if I 
completely agree, but I'm curious to hear if, if you agree. He said that, um, he said, I, I don't know where the, where the top is in this huge hash rate growth spurt, but I do think once we hit that peak, it will remain the top for several years, if not a decade. So basically Nick was trying to say that at some point, I don't know, some, and somewhere in the future, hash rate is going to peak and potentially not make a new all time high and, and, you know, for 10 years, do you agree with that? Or maybe I misinterpreted it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think Nick's good at getting engagement on Twitter these days for sure. Uh, that, that I agree with. Um, it's an interesting thought exercise for sure. Um, the way I'd approach thinking about this is, is kind of related to a lot of the topics we've discussed already today, which is like supply and demand for hash rate. So, um, demand is set supply really is like, so on the max supply side, it's like how many machines can these guys produce? Um, which, you know, we've talked about really as a function of economics, if Bitmain can sell machines for higher than their cost of, you know, goods sold, then they'll do it. They'll produce more machines. Right. Um, and so under that assumption, manufacturers definitely have the ability to produce more machines, even if there is kind of decreasing, uh, efficiency gains per generation, there will be some type of gain over time. And the amount of units on the network will also increase. Um, and then, so the other dynamic I'd look at really for that is like, are people willing to supply hash rate uh, to the network? And that's a function of mining economics. So if Bitcoin price increases significantly, people are going to want to run machines. If it stays flat, then the, you know, the, there may be some like laggard uh, hash rate growth and it may even be stagnant. But um, so, I guess my end uh, analysis on that is like, I think because I believe the price of Bitcoin is going to go up, I think there's a very low chance that hash rate growth stagnates. Uh, stagnates. I think it's going to continue to increase into the future. Um, so I might have to disagree with uh, my co-founder, Nick, there on that one. Um, but uh, I guess we'll wait to see what happens. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can certainly see the case where Bitcoin just you know, sticks around 20K and more halvings occur and maybe it goes lower, then yeah, I'd, I would agree the hash rate might be falling. Like if Bitcoin's at 10K in, 20, in, I don't know, five years and, you know, Bitmain kind of hasn't been releasing crazy new rigs, then yeah, I could see that. But I think if, you know, if in five years from now or 10 years from now, Bitcoin's at 100,000 or higher, I have a hard time seeing how hash rate is not significantly higher than it is today. But it will be interesting to see over time. There's, like you said, there's a lot of variables at play. Um, but yeah, kind of going off that, thinking about Bitcoin mining in 10 years, how do you see like the mining industry developing over time? Do you think there's going to be more large facilities like Riot's Winestone, or do you think there's going to be more like energy, energy scavengers that are like picking up wasted methane? Um, how do you see like the balance of those two very opposite kind of, uh, mining structures playing out over time. Yeah, that's, that's interesting one. Um, I, I th there's a lot of things to discuss on this topic. So I think the two biggest, uh, reasons I think people choose certain locations or countries to mine is because of the power cost and the regulatory environment, uh, power cost being number one, regulatory being number two. Um, and you can see evidence of that, like, Right now, people are signing up for hosting contracts in the seven to nine cents a kilowatt hour range in North America. Venezuela is offering three to four cents, yet investors don't want to put their machines in Venezuela because they're, you know, uncomfortable with the regulatory risk there. 
Um, so both are, you know, important to, to how miners look at it. So when you're like kind of thinking through like mega farms versus off-grid miners, I think they have considerations for both, you know, on the power cost side, um, there's a lot of really good opportunities that are small scale in nature because they're stranded energy assets that, um, you know, maybe they're somewhere between like two to 10 megawatts. Um, and those are really nice sites to have at the same time. I also think there's a future where a lot of the biggest miners are energy companies, which have a very low cost of power. And at, at that point, probably a lot of those are going to be large scale sites too. Um, so I don't know if I have like a strong opinion on who will get the lowest energy over the long run. Um, I think both have really interesting opportunities, you know, on and off grid, um, in terms of regulatory, like I'm increasingly concerned about that, certainly in the United States where like our company is based and most of our partners are based. Um, I, th I think it's very prudent for investors to diversify their regulatory and jurisdictional risk, um, at least between different states and you know townships and and, and utilities um but then taking that step further ideally diversifying internationally too um you never know when uh, a certain government you know municipal uh, federal uh, state level will, will turn against you and so you want to make sure you have a global defensible business there um, even if you're no you're based in the us and you do business here um so i think in that case there's going to be a lot more hash rate moving to new places like the Middle East, um, potentially Latin America as well. Um, so we're, we're definitely excited to see that happen uh, just from like a network standpoint, we think it's healthy um, as well from like a, a company perspective, also think that's gonna be important too. Uh, you know, the public companies right now are like, Bitfarms operates in Argentina, Hive operates in Iceland and Sweden. Outside of that, everyone is US and Canada. So it's it's really not diversified right now, but I think that will change in the next 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, over the last year or two, we've kind of seen the importance of setting up your facility in like a stable political jurisdiction, whether it is the U.S. or, you know, other countries that may become that are more more friendly to miners. It's but it's been important to, to recognize, because if you set up your facility in Russia, China, Kazakhstan, like a lot of those ended up getting wiped out or, or you lost your rigs if you were a U.S. investor. Um, but yeah, I definitely fully support the idea that, you know, our minds should be geographically distributed all throughout the world. And I hope that continues to happen. But, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Do you worry, ever worry about public companies obtaining like too much hash rate? Like I know over the last, I think it was two years or, or however it was, private companies share of, of total Bitcoin hash rate has gone to gotten or public companies are outgrowing private companies, their growth rates significantly. Do you, does that worry you at all about Bitcoin or, or how do you think about that? I, I think it's natural just given how robust like the capital markets are in, in, you know, the Western world, like us is just so much easier to raise capital if you're public than if you're private. So I understand why it happened. Um, and uh, you know, I don't fault like people for going public. I mean, they're looking out for their business this industry is supposed to be capitalist um, and Bitcoin is supposed to be anti-fragile. So a company going public shouldn't change the security of, of Bitcoin. But, you know, in the back of my head, I am slightly worried with like how much of mining hash rate is getting publicly known and is publicly out there, um, which means that the surface level for state attacks is, is a little bit higher, a little bit easier uh, to happen. I'm, I'm not like 
thinking that in the next 10 years, the U.S. is going to try and conspire against like the Bitcoin industry by taking over all these people's facilities. But certainly like from a miner's perspective, we want to build as resilient of an industry as possible so that no single actor, regardless if we think they're good today or not, or not can attack it. Um, so, I mean, I'm actively trying to help promote like international diversification uh, and small scale mining too. I know Blockware does a lot on that too. You guys, you know, help both institutional and retail alike. I think having guys like Blockware and Luxor in the industry trying to prioritize like the development of kind of the small to mid-sized miner is important um, and is, is great for the ecosystem. If we can get more people that, you know, turn on three, four megawatts worth of power um, in remote areas, maybe off grid, um, I think that's a great thing for the network. Yeah, totally agree. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily worried about the U.S. attacking Bitcoin and like, you know, just doing like an empty block attack to where like no one can use it. I guess I would be more concern, concerned about something that's basically like what's kind of happening with ETH where the blocks are, they're not building on these blocks consecutively, but many of the, uh, I guess, validators or whatever you're, they're called are creating OFAC compliant blocks. And it's like currently greater than 50%. And I guess theoretically they could just, now that they know that they are, you know, they have a majority of the uh, hash rate or whatever, whatever you call it on ETH, they could just build on top of each other's blocks. And as long as they're all doing it, they basically create an OFAC compliant only chain because the minority of hash rate, I guess, could never, they could build a block, but they would, they would, the other validators would be building on top of the OFAC compliant blocks only. So I guess that's the risk that if, you know, a ton of hash rate is in the U.S., they could start only producing OFAC compliant Bitcoin blocks. And if they all conspired together, they could just keep building OFAC compliant blocks on top of each other. And then some transactions would just not ever be able to make it into, you know, the blockchain. That's a great point. I, th I think you can have the belief that Bitcoin's anti-fragile at the same time as having these other thoughts of like, okay, what are the attack vectors? How do we defend against it? And I, I think that having, you know, over 30, 35% of network hash rate in a single country is bad for the network. I said that when China had it. And like, unfortunately, I have to say it again with the United States now that we're here. Uh, I mean, I live here, like our company's here, but like, we still don't want it to be centralized in one country. Um, that that OFAC, uh, you know, blacklisting is something we think about a lot, especially running a mining pool. Um, you know, there, there's a chance that that comes to the mining space. Um, what we see really um, is that oftentimes when a Bitcoin address gets added to the OFAC list, it's used once and then it's never used again uh, because somebody spins up a new address. And so they send it to a mixer or something. And then, um, you know, there's so not a lot of pools or miners are including any really OFAC sanctioned addresses in their blocks. Um, you know, they're, they're, they used to until it got added to the list and then immediately like those addresses aren't used. So in terms of like the actual transactions affected, we, we did analysis on this. We only saw like five or six transactions in the entire network uh, throughout the past year from OFAC sanctioned addresses, um, mostly because people, as soon as they get that, they just send it out. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to dive into that research that you guys did because I haven't seen that yet. Um, but yeah, I think this was like a fantastic conversation. Is there any other topics that you want to hit or is there anything you want to plug? I know you got Twitter. I know you got Luxor. Yeah. So I guess um, just a quick plug. You can find us on Twitter, Luxor Tech, te tech Team. Uh, my Twitter is Ethan underscore Vera. So 
um, hit us up if you're looking to get in the mining space or, or, or want to chat anything mining or hash price, hash rate related. Um, yeah, and then I guess just wrapping it up here, end of year projection on hash rate, I'm going to go with 275. Sounds about right. I remember the start of the year, everyone was saying like 350 and something, some crazy uh, numbers like that. But uh, but yeah, I think 275 probably might be about right. We'll we'll see. But uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. This was you know great conversation. I'm sure the audience is gonna love it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Awesome. See you, Ethan. 